Volume two, chapter three, part C of the Mysteries of Odolfo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simon. The Mysteries of Odolfo by Anne Radcliffe. Volume two, chapter three, part C. On the following day, Madame Montoni, being alone with Emily, introduced the mention of Count Marano by expressing her surprise that she had not joined the party on the water the preceding evening, and at her abrupt departure to Venice. Emily then related what had passed, expressed her concern for the mutual mistake that had occurred between Montoni and herself, and solicited her aunt's kind offices in urging him to give a decisive denial to the Count's further addresses. But she soon perceived that Madame Montoni had not been ignorant of the late conversation when she introduced the present. "'You have no encouragement to expect from me,' said her aunt, in these notions. "'I have already given my opinion on the subject, and think Signor Montoni right in enforcing, by any means, your consent. If young persons will be blind to their interest, and obstinately oppose it, why, the greatest blessings they can have are friends who will oppose their folly.' Pray, what pretensions of any kind do you think you have to such a match as is now offered you? Not any whatever, madam, replied Emily, and, therefore, at least, suffer me to be happy in my humility. Nay, niece, it cannot be denied that you have pride enough. My poor brother, your father, had his share of pride too, though, let me add, his fortune did not justify it. Emily, somewhat embarrassed by the indignation which this malevolent allusion to her father excited, and by the difficulty of rendering her answer as temperate as it should be reprehensive, hesitated for some moments in a confusion which highly gratified her aunt. At length she said, "'My father's pride, madam, had a noble object, the happiness which he knew could be derived only from goodness, knowledge, and charity. As it never consisted in his superiority, in point of fortune to some persons, it was not humbled by his inferiority in that respect to others. He never disdained those who were wretched by poverty and misfortune. He did sometimes despise persons who, with many opportunities of happiness, rendered themselves miserable by vanity, ignorance, and cruelty. I shall think it my highest glory to emulate such pride." "'I do not pretend to understand anything of these high-flown sentiments, niece. You have all that glory to yourself. I would teach you a little plain sense, and not have you so wise as to despise happiness.' "'That would indeed not be wisdom, but folly,' said Emily, "'for wisdom can boast no higher attainment than happiness. But you will allow, madam, that our ideas of happiness may differ.' I cannot doubt that you wish me to be happy, but I must fear you are mistaken in the means of making me so. I cannot boast of a learned education, niece, such as your father thought proper to give you, and therefore do not pretend to understand all these fine speeches about happiness. I must be contented to understand only common sense, and happy would it have been for you and your father if that had been included in his education." Emily was too much shocked by these reflections on her father's memory to despise this speech as it deserved. Madame Montoni was about to speak, but Emily quitted the room, and retired to her own, where the little spirit she had lately exerted yielded to grief and vexation, and left her only to her tears. From every review of her situation she could derive, indeed, only new sorrow. 
to the discovery which had just been forced upon her of Montoni's unworthiness, she had now to add that of the cruel vanity, for the gratification of which her aunt was about to sacrifice her, of the effrontery and cunning with which, at the time that she meditated the sacrifice, she boasted of her tenderness, or insulted her victim, and of the venomous envy which, as it did not scruple to attack her father's character, could scarcely be expected to withhold from her own. During the few days that intervened between this conversation and the departure for Miarenti, Montoni did not once address himself to Emily. His looks sufficiently declared his resentment, but that he should forbear to renew a mention of the subject of it exceedingly surprised her, who was no less astonished that, during three days, Count Morano neither visited Montoni or was named by him. Several conjectures arose in her mind. Sometimes she feared that the dispute between them had been revived and had ended fatally to the Count. Sometimes she was inclined to hope that weariness or disgust at her firm rejection of his suit had induced him to relinquish it, and, at others, she suspected that he had now recourse to stratagem and forbore his visits and prevailed with Montoni to forbear the repetition of his name in the expectation that gratitude and generosity would prevail with her to give him the consent which he could not hope from love. Thus passed the time in vain conjecture, and alternate hopes and fears, till the day arrived when Montoni was to set out for the villa of Miarenti, which, like the preceding ones, neither brought the Count or the mention of him. Montoni having determined not to leave Venice till towards evening, that he might avoid the heats, and catch the cool breezes of night, embarked about an hour before sunset, with his family, in a barge for the Brenta. Emily sat alone near the stern of the vessel, and, as it floated slowly on, watched the gay and lofty city lessening from her view, till its palaces seemed to sink in the distant waves, while its loftier towers and domes, illumined by the declining sun, appeared on the horizon like those far-seen clouds which, in more northern climes, often linger on the western verge and catch the last light of a summer's evening. Soon after, even these grew dim, and faded in distance from her sight. But she still sat gazing on the vast scene of cloudless sky and mighty waters, and listening in pleasing awe to the deep-sounding waves, while, as her eyes glanced over the Adriatic towards the opposite shores, which were, however, far beyond the reach of sight, she thought of Greece, and a thousand classical remembrances stealing to her mind, she experienced that pensive luxury which is felt on viewing the scenes of ancient story, and, on comparing their present state of silence and solitude with that of their former grandeur and animation. The scenes of the Iliad elapsed in glowing colours to her fancy, scenes once the haunt of heroes, now lonely and in ruins, but which still shone in the poet's strain in all their youthful splendour as her imagination painted with melancholy touches the deserted plains of Troy, such as they appeared in this after-day, she reanimated the landscape with the following little story. STANZAS O'er Ilion's plains where once the warrior bled, and once the poet raised his deathless strain, O'er Ilion's plains a weary driver led his stately camels, for the ruined fane wide round the lonely scene his glance he threw, for now the red cloud faded in the west, and twilight o'er the silent landscape drew her deepening veil, eastward his course he pressed. There on the grey horizon's glimmering bound rose the proud columns of deserted Troy, 
and wandering shepherds now a shelter found within those walls where princes want to joy. Beneath the lofty porch the driver passed, then from his camels heaved the heavy load, partook with them the simple cool repast, and in short vesper gave himself to God. From distant lands with merchandise he came, his all of wealth his patient servants bore, oft deep-drawn sighs his anxious wish proclaimed to reach again his happy cottage door. For there his wife, his little children dwell, their smiles shall pay the toil of many an hour. Even now warm tears to expectation swell, as fancy o'er his mind extends her power. A death-like stillness reigned, where once the song, the song of heroes, waked the midnight air, save when a solemn murmur rolled along that seemed to say, For future worlds prepare. For time's imperious voice was frequent heard, shaking the marble temple to its fall, by hands he long had conquered, vainly reared and distant runes answered to his call. While Hamlet slept, his camels round him lay. Beneath him all his store of wealth was piled, and here his cruise an empty wallet lay, and there the flute that cheered him in the wild. The robber Tartar on a slumber stole, for o'er the waste at eve he watched his train. Ah, who his thirst of plunder shall control, who calls on him for mercy, calls in vain. A poisoned poniard in his belt he wore, a crescent sword depended at his side, the deathful quiver at his back he bore, and infants at his very look had died. The moon's cold beam athwart the temple fell, and to his sleeping prey the tartar led. But soft, a startled camel shook his bell, then stretched his limbs and reared his drowsy head. Hamid awoke, the poniard glittered high, swift from his couch he sprung, and scaped the blow, when from an unknown hand the arrows fly that lay the ruffian in his vengeance low. He groaned, he died, from forth a columned gate a fearful shepherd, pale and silent, crept, who, as he watched his folded flock star late, had marked the robber steel where Hamid slept. He feared his own, and saved the stranger's life. Poor Hamid clasped him to his grateful heart, then roused his camels for the dusty strife, and, with the shepherd, hastened to depart. And now Aurora breathes her freshening gale, and faintly trembles on the eastern cloud. And now the sun from under twilight's veil looks gaily forth and melts her airy shroud. Wide over the level plains his slanting beams dart their long lines on Ilion's towered sight. The distant Hellespont with morning gleams, and old Scamander winds his waves in light. All merry sound the camel-bells, so gay, and merry beats fond Hamid's heart, for he, ere the dim evening steals upon the day, his children, wife, and happy home shall see. As Emily approached the shores of Italy, she began to discriminate the rich features and varied colouring of the landscape. The purple hills, groves of orange pine and cypress, shading magnificent villas, and towns rising among vineyards and plantations. The noble Brenta, pouring its broad waves into the sea, now appeared, and, when she reached its mouth, the barge stopped, that the horses might be fastened which were now to tow it up the stream. This done, Emily gave a last look to the Adriatic, and to the dim sail, that from the sky mixed wave dawns on the sight. And the barge slowly glided between the green and luxuriant slopes of the river. 
the grandeur of the palladian villas that adorn these shores was considerably heightened by the setting rays which threw strong contrasts of light and shade upon the porticoes and long arcades and beamed a mellow lustre upon the orangeries and the tall groves of pine and cypress that overhung the buildings the scent of oranges of flowering myrtles and other odoriferous plants was diffused upon the air and often from these embowered retreats a strain of music stole on the calm and softened into silence the sun now sunk below the horizon twilight fell over the landscape and emily wrapped in musing silence continued to watch its features gradually vanishing into obscurity she remembered her many happy evenings when with st aubert she had observed the shades of twilight steal over a scene as beautiful as this from the gardens of la vallee and a tear fell to the memory of her father her spirits were softened into melancholy by the influence of the hour, by the low murmur of the wave passing under the vessel, and the stillness of the air, that trembled only at intervals with distant music. Why else should she, at these moments, have looked on her attachment to Valancourt with presages so very afflicting, since she had but lately received letters from him that had suited for a while all her anxieties? It now seemed to her oppressed mind that she had taken leave of him for ever, and that the countries which separated them would never more be retraced by her. She looked upon Count Morano with horror, as in some degree the cause of this, but apart from him a conviction, if such that may be called, which arises from no proof, and which she knew not how to account for, seized her mind, that she should never see Valancourt again. Though she knew that neither Morano's solicitations nor Montoni's commands had lawful power to enforce her obedience, she regarded both with a superstitious dread that they would finally prevail. Lost in this melancholy reverie, and shedding frequent tears, Emily was at length roused by Montoni, and she followed him to the cabin, where refreshments were spread, and her aunt was seated alone. The countenance of Madame Montoni was inflamed with a resentment that appeared to be the consequence of some conversation she had held with her husband, who regarded her with a kind of sullen disdain, and both preserved for some time a haughty silence. Montoni then spoke to Emily of Monsieur Quesnel. "'You will not, I hope, persist in disclaiming your knowledge of the subject of my letter to him.' "'I had hoped, sir, that it was no longer necessary for me to disclaim it,' said Emily. "'I had hoped from your silence that you was convinced of your error.' "'You have hoped impossibilities, then,' replied Montoni. I might as reasonably have expected to find sincerity and uniformity of conduct in one of your sex as you to convict me of error in this affair. Emily blushed and was silent. She now perceived too clearly that she had hoped an impossibility, for where no mistake had been committed no conviction could follow, and it was evident that Montoni's conduct had not been the consequence of mistake but of design. Anxious to escape from conversation which was both afflicting and humiliating to her, she soon returned to the deck, and resumed her station near the stern, without apprehension of cold, for no vapour rose from the water, and the air was dry and tranquil. Here, at least, the benevolence of nature allowed her the quiet which Montoni had denied her elsewhere. It was now past midnight. The stars shed a kind of twilight that served to show the dark outline of the shores on either hand, and the grey surface of the river till the moon rose from behind a high palm grove and shed her mellow lustre over the scene. The vessel glided smoothly on. Amid the stillness of the hour, Emily heard, now and then, 
the solitary voice of the bargemen on the bank as they spoke to their horses, while, from a remote part of the vessel, with melancholy song, the sailor soothed beneath the trembling moon the midnight wave. Emily, meanwhile, anticipated her reception by Monsieur and Madame Quenel, considered what she should say on the subject of La Vallée, and then, to withhold her mind from more anxious topics, tried to amuse herself by discriminating the faint-drawn features of the landscape reposing in the moonlight. While her fancy thus wandered, she saw, at a distance, a building peeping between the moonlit trees, and, as the barge approached, heard voices speaking, and soon distinguished the lofty portico of a villa, overshadowed by groves of pine and sycamore, which she recollected to be the same that had formerly been pointed out to her as belonging to Madame Quenel's relative. The barge stopped at a flight of marble steps, which led up the bank to a lawn. Lights appeared between some pillars beyond the portico. Montoni sent forward his servant, and then disembarked with his family. They found Monsieur and Madame Quenel, with a few friends, seated on sofas in the portico, enjoying the cool breeze of the night, and eating fruits and ices, while some of their servants at a little distance on the river's bank were performing a simple serenade. Emily was now accustomed to the way of living in this warm country, and was not surprised to find Monsieur and Madame Quenel in their portico, two hours after midnight. The usual salutations being over, the company seated themselves in the portico, and refreshments were brought them from the adjoining hall, where a banquet was spread, and servants attended. When the bustle of this meeting had subsided, and Emily had recovered from the little flutter into which it had thrown her spirits, she was struck with the singular beauty of the hall, so perfectly accommodated to the luxuries of the season. It was of white marble, and the roof, rising into an open cupola, was supported by columns of the same material. Two opposite sides of the apartment, terminating in open porticos, admitted to the hall a full view of the gardens, and of the river scenery. In the centre a fountain continually refreshed the air, and seemed to heighten the fragrance that breathed from the surrounding orangeries, while its dashing waters gave an agreeable and soothing sound. Etruscan lamps, suspended from the pillars, diffused a brilliant light over the interior part of the hall, leaving the remoter porticos to the softer lustre of the moon. Monsieur Quenel talked apart to Montoni of his own affairs, in his usual strain of self-importance, boasted of his new acquisitions, and then affected to pity some disappointments which Montoni had lately sustained. Meanwhile the latter, whose pride at least enabled him to despise such vanity as this, and whose discernment at once detected under this assumed pity the frivolous malignity of Quenel's mind, listened to him in contemptuous silence, till he named his niece, and then they left the portico and walked away into the gardens. Emily, however, still attended to Madame Quenel, who spoke of France, for even the name of her native country was dear to her, and she found some pleasure in looking at a person who had lately been in it. That country, too, was inhabited by Valancourt, and she listened to the mention of it, with a faint hope that he also would be named. Madame Quenel, who, when she was in France, had talked with rapture of Italy, now that she was in Italy, talked with equal praise of France, and endeavoured to excite the wonder and the envy of her auditors by accounts of places which they had not been happy enough to see. In these descriptions she not only imposed upon them, but upon herself, for she never thought a present pleasure equal to one that was past, and thus the delicious climate, the fragrant orangeries, and all the luxuries which surrounded her, slept unnoticed, while her fancy wandered over the distant scenes of a northern country. Emily listened in vain for the name of Valancourt. Madame Montoni spoke in her turn of the delights of Venice, 
and of the pleasure she expected from visiting the fine castle of Montoni on the Apennine, which latter mention, at least, was merely a retaliating boast, for Emily well knew that her aunt had no taste for solitary grandeur, and, particularly, for such as the castle of Odolfo promised. Thus the party continued to converse, and, as far as civility would permit, to torture each other by mutual boasts, while they reclined on sofas in the portico, and were environed with delights both from nature and art, by which any honest minds would have been tempered to benevolence, and happy imaginations would have been soothed into enchantment. The dawn, soon after, trembled in the eastern horizon, and the light tints of morning, gradually expanding, showed the beautifully declining forms of the Italian mountains, and the gleaming landscapes stretched at their feet. Then the sunbeams, shooting up from behind the hills, spread over the scene that fine saffron tinge which seems to impart repose to all it touches. The landscape no longer gleamed, all its glowing colours were revealed, except that its remoter features were still softened and united in the mist of distance, whose sweet effect was heightened to Emily by the dark verdure of the pines and cypresses that overarched the foreground of the river. The market-people, passing with their boats to Venice, now formed a moving picture on the Brenta. Most of these had little painted awnings to shelter their owners from the sunbeams which, together with the piles of fruit and flowers displayed beneath, and the tasteful simplicity of the peasant girls who watched the rural treasures, rendered them gay and striking objects. The swift movement of the boats down the current, the quick glance of oars in the water, and now and then the passing chorus of peasants who reclined under the sail of their little bark, or the tones of some rustic instrument, played by a girl as she sat near her sylvan cargo, heightened the animation and festivity of the scene. When Montoni and M. Canel had joined the ladies, the party left the portico for the gardens, where the charming scenery soon withdrew Emily's thoughts from painful subjects. The majestic forms and rich verdure of cypresses she had never seen so perfect before. Groves of cedar, lemon and orange, the spiry clusters of the pine and poplar, the luxuriant chestnut and oriental plain threw all their pomp of shade over these gardens, while bowers of flowering myrtle and other spicy shrubs mingled their fragrance with that of flowers, whose vivid and various colouring glowed with increased effect beneath the contrasted umbrage of the groves. The air also was continually refreshed by rivulets, which, with more taste than fashion, had been suffered to wander among the green recesses. Emily often lingered behind the party to contemplate the distant landscape that closed a vista, or that gleamed beneath the dark foliage of the foreground. The spiral summits of the mountains, touched with a purple tint, broken and steep above, but shelving gradually to their base. The open valley, marked by no formal lines of art, and the tall groves of cypress, pine and poplar, sometimes embellished by a ruined villa, whose broken columns appeared between the branches of a pine that seemed to droop over their fall. From other parts of the gardens the character of the view was entirely changed, and the fine solitary beauty of the landscape shifted for the crowded features and varied colouring of inhabitation. The sun was now gaining fast upon the sky, and the party quitted the gardens and retired to repose. End of Volume 2, Chapter 3